The word says we're called to make disciples. We're growing in the word of God. Jesus Christ was sent to be our saviour. This is the Bromley Town Church Podcast. We pray God speaks to you through this message, blessing you as you live out God's word. Stream or download other sermon podcasts via the Bromley Town Church website or by using the SoundCloud app. Head over to BromleyTownChurch.com. So let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this time to be together, to share in worship and to share in your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to what you want to speak to us today, that we may come to know you and your great love more dearly in our lives and in this town. All this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. So um, the text I'm taking today is um, John 3, 1 to 21. So I'm going to read through that for you now. You may have your own Bibles that you want to follow that along in. Now there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. 
chosen this passage for this morning because I think it says a couple of important things about what our calling and our mission is in this world. And also it says something very important about Christian unity, what it's based upon and how we live it out. So let's start with the context for this passage this morning. As you go through John's Gospel, um, the first chapter set out very carefully, very deliberately, just who Jesus is and how we should respond to him. So as you well know, John starts his Gospel not with the Christmas story, but rather that great cosmological image of the heavenly existence of the Word in the beginning, how this Word became flesh and come to dwelt among us. Verses 11 and 12 talk about this, how his own did not receive him, but those who did get to become children of God. Those two verses really prefigure the entire structure of John's Gospel, which can be divided neatly into two big themes. Chapters 1 to 12, in what we call the Book of Signs. They tell us how Jesus came to his own land through his ministry in Galilee and Jerusalem, and yet his own people do not receive him. Then chapters 13 to 20 are what sometimes are called the Book of Glory, those which contain Jesus' words to those who did receive him, and tells how he returned to the Father in order to give them the gift of life and to make them God's children. It's all there in some detail in this first chapter of John's Gospel. People recognize that this is new thing happening among them. John says this is the Lamb of God, the sacrifice that will bring the righteousness that people seek. Jesus then goes on to call his first disciples, Andrew, Simon, Philip, Nathaniel, simple men who yet discern something of the uniqueness and the importance of Jesus in their midst. The one who we are told at the end of chapter 1 is the mediator between heaven and earth. Then we carry on, we're into chapter 2, where Jesus starts to make a bit more of a stir. He carries out the first of his signs, rather grudgingly turning the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, a symbol of the new things God is doing in the midst of everyone there. It revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him because of what he did. For John, Jesus' miracles are not called miracles, they're called signs. They're things that point towards something. And that thing they point towards is the salvation, the abundance, and the new life now present in the world in Christ. The proper response to which, when you see them, is, of course, faith. Then Jesus goes on in chapter 2 to turn over the um, tables of the money changers in the temple. He talks about the destruction of the temple and raising it in three days. And the people stand. They look around them at this huge temple and go, well, how is this possible? This took years to build. What are you talking about, Jesus? But of course, Jesus is talking about something quite different, looking forward to his crucifixion and his resurrection when the presence of God um, is seen by all and all sins are atoned for. This is a feature John uses in his gospel over and over again. The idea that words have multiple levels and multiple meanings. Jesus will say something which people interpret in one way, but actually he means it in another. That's what we're going to see in our passage today. 
So chapters 1 and 2 set out who Jesus is, um, that some believe in him through his signs and through his teaching, and that others simply cannot understand what he's talking about. This all comes to head in this third chapter. Excuse me a moment. So here in our reading today, we have, um, in chapter 3 of John's Gospel, the character of Nicodemus. He's a prominent leader and a teacher. And he comes to Jesus at night. Why at night? A number of reasons. Firstly, the practical reason that he doesn't want anybody else to see what he's doing. None of his contemporaries would approve of him going out to see this northern rabble-rouser who's caused so much trouble to the smooth running of the temple. He doesn't want others to know what he is doing. But also, running through John's Gospel, we have it um, from that first chapter. There is a theme always of darkness and of light, the light that will enlighten all people. The darkness is the darkness of ignorance and of sin and of confusion. And it's in that spirit of darkness, of ignorance, of confusion, that Nicodemus also comes to see Jesus. Let me tell you a story. When I was a student, we used to have lots of events where you'd go and you'd sit and in a room with other students, with other postgrads, with other lecturers. Um, you'd have some drinks, you would chat, and then someone would get up and talk about whatever learned and clever thing they were researching. They were quite nice evenings. But I was a somewhat brash and overconfident undergraduate. I tended to read the summary of the introductory book about any topic because my real um, studies were all the local hostelries around. And I felt that I could talk my way through most of these things in these books. And once I went to one of these things, um, I sat down around a table with a few people I didn't know, and I started to talk away about why our speaker this evening was going to be wrong about something called Q. Everybody listened very politely. There was a gleam of amusement in their eyes. And that fact was just starting to dawn on me um, and come to my attention. And I was wondering, what's going on when we were all called to order for the talk to begin? Suddenly, the person sitting right opposite me gets up, walks to the podium, casting their eyes in my direction begins. I know here this evening there are some of you who don't agree with me. I have never wanted the earth to swallow me up more than in that moment. I didn't say much for the rest of the evening or any others. I'm sure we've all been in those situations, haven't we? Where it becomes apparent that for all that you think you know, you're talking about. You're talking to somebody who knows so much more. And as the conversation goes on, you can only sort of helplessly watch as it goes off in ways that you hadn't imagined from the start. You just have to do that polite nodding and smiling and, uh, you know, everything just to try and get through it when you realize things aren't going the way you thought they were going to. This is exactly what happens to Nicodemus in our readings this morning. He's come to Jesus. He's really curious. Who is this man? What is he about? He sees something there that attracts him and interests him and he wants to learn more. To see how it coheres with all of his learning, with all of his knowledge of the law, of the Jewish faith, with all of his wisdom. And yet, nine verses later, he's reduced simply to asking, how can all this be? All his learning coming to nothing. 
in the face of Jesus. So Nicodemus comes. He's seen the signs. He's seen the teaching of Jesus. He's interesting. He has some partial faith because of what he's seen, sort of reminiscent of Nathaniel at the beginning of chapter 1 um, of John's Gospel, um, when Jesus promises if he believes on this, he will see greater things if he sticks with him. But that's not what Nicodemus is doing. He's got questions. He recognizes that Jesus is doing something of God. Are you a teacher, Jesus? What category does Jesus fall into? Is he a blessed rabbi? Is he a prophet? Is he something else? This is where Nicodemus is going when he comes to Jesus. How do you fit into my world, into my understandings, into the customs of the Jewish world I love so much? Where do you sit so that I can understand you, Jesus? And yet the reply comes back, not at all what Nicodemus is saying, uh, expecting. Jesus says, very truly I tell you. Now, in the Greek, that's lego, um, amen, amen, lego, soy. Um, it's a solemn proclamation which doesn't always come across well in the English translations. John has, um, Jesus says this a lot in John's gospel when he's about to tell you something important, when he's about to tell you something um, um, really authoritative. Amen, amen, lego, soy. Truly, 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 I tell you. No one can see the kingdom without being born from above. And yet Nicodemus looks at him. He must have kind of furled his brow and goes, you what? How can anyone be born after having grown old? Can you enter a second time into your mother's womb? Now, this is very confusing when you read it because we're reading it in English. Remember what I said earlier about John working on two levels? Well, we have that just here. What Jesus says in the Greek, he uses the word genon in its passive form. And that can mean a couple of things either to be born or to be begotten. And then the next word Jesus uses, anothen, again, in the Greek, can either mean sort of again or from above. So what Jesus is saying is that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are begotten by God from above. But what Nicodemus hears is that you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born a second time in a very literal way. There's a clear contrast between Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus is the one solemnly speaking the truth of the kingdom. <coughs> and that life in that kingdom means being born afresh from God. Nicodemus is only hearing the very human, the very physical message of reproducing our first birth. And understandably, he's totally confused by it. So Jesus speaks again. Again, a solemn, amen, amen, lego, soy. Truly, truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom unless they are born of water and of the spirit. What is flesh is flesh. What is spirit is spirit. Again, there are more meanings, more wordplay here. Jesus is talking about the pneuma. Um, the word used can mean wind or it can mean spirit. Jesus is talking about the spirit of God whilst Nicodemus really is none the wiser, thinking about the winds blowing and a physical thing still. He again misses where Jesus is pointing him, the reality of new birth in God's spirit being key for entering the kingdom. He's missing the reality and the presence of God right in front of him. 
All he can manage is that rather weak reply. How? What is going on? So Jesus chides him gently. Are you a teacher of Israel? Do you know anything? Of course, Nicodemus is a teacher of Israel. And it turns out not to be enough. Jesus goes on to assert his authority again. Um, no one's ascended from heaven um, into heaven to protect the one who came from heaven, which is him, of course. Now, we can think of those who did ascend in the Old Testament, Elijah, Moses. But Jesus here puts a clear gap between those heroes of the Jewish faith and himself. Um, it's only he who fully sees the Father, who fully understands him, who can fully bring his words and his salvation. It's only Jesus who has the knowledge to make sense of all things. Jesus goes on to say how this will all come by drawing the parallel to the bronze snake, um, which you'll find in Numbers 21. You may remember it's lifted onto a pole to cure those who suffered the snake bites while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. Jesus, like that, will be lifted up um, to bring life to all who look upon him in faith. All this comes about through his crucifixion and his resurrection. And so what we have so far is Jesus setting out um, just everything that's going to happen in the gospel going forward. New life, crucifixion, resurrection, all because, um, and then we get to it at 316, that great passage, beloved by so many, um, God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son. This is the supreme love for the whole world. And it's interesting because it's the only place in John's gospel where you get um, love directed to all things and to all people. It's the ultimate expression of God's loving purposes for us all. If you go through the rest of John's gospel, God's love is directed just to the disciples. If you read um, 1 John, um, the epistle, it's directed to all Christians. But at the crowning point of this discussion is the assertion that all the love of God, all the life he offers, everything he has, is for all the world. If only it would come from the darkness into the light. It's a great and magisterial statement. Yet Nicodemus, by this point, must be completely puzzled out of his mind. What? Why? How? Who? Ugh, what do I do? This passage takes us on a journey um, from Nicodemus coming in darkness, asking Jesus if he's just a teacher, through to the dawning light of morning and the light of Jesus' teaching, telling him how the life of God will be found in the world. Nicodemus leaves this conversation in the light of morning unsure, shaken, puzzled. He thought he knew what was going on, and now he thinks he knows absolutely nothing. As he leaves um, in that dawn morning, he finds himself in the half-light of daybreak. Something is there, but he's just not sure of it. We will meet Nicodemus twice more in John's Gospel. Once at chapter 7, verses 50 to 51, when the temple authorities want to arrest Jesus, and Nicodemus speaks up, if not exactly for Jesus, um, but then at least for proper legal procedure, and enough in a way that marks him out suspicious to his friends and colleagues as someone perhaps you can't fully trust. And then we see Nicodemus again at the end of the gospel, chapter 19, verses 39. He is one of the followers of Jesus, 
bringing it says 100 pounds. Um, in Roman, there were only 12 ounces in a pound, so it's more like 75 of our modern pounds. Still a huge amount of spices to anoint Jesus' body, showing his dedication and his care for the Christ. Nicodemus comes on a journey from darkness into light. And it doesn't happen, though, in a moment. It takes the entire length of the gospel for him to get there, to realize that what he thought he knew was so wrong, to learn to see again, and to learn to embrace the new life that Jesus so mysteriously talked about. When we look at the world that is around us, I think there is much to take from Nicodemus's example, Nicodemus's journey of someone who is interested in Jesus, but simply doesn't get it at first, whose ideas about faith are so different or undefined that he cannot quite understand what Jesus is talking about. The truth is today that we live in a world where people are not, for the most part, knowledgeable about faith. In schools and in homes, very little is taught about Christianity. So actually, many people have no idea at all what faith is about. I fielded a terrifying number of questions over the last few years about just why are Christians so into Easter or Christmas? Well, at that sort of level, believe it or not, what has Christianity to do with Easter or Christmas? The basic comprehension of just the facts are gone, let alone what we speak and what we mean about when we talk about ideas such as sin and redemption. That just makes no sense to many people. Today, we live not in a world where people are either for faith, people like us, or vehemently opposed to it like the New Atheists, but actually most people are simply completely indifferent to faith and to the churches. People are busy working, trying to survive or to bring up families. Leisure time can be filled with all manner of amusing things that distract us. Pain mostly can be managed. And now even the way that we view death is changing. It's more about a celebration of a person's life rather than a ritual for grieving. Life for many people is less strange, less mysterious. It points less towards the great mystery and life of God than it did in the past. Nicodemus may have been in literal and metaphorical darkness, but at least he had the learning and the knowledge of how God worked with the people of Israel to give him an inkling that something new was happening in Jesus. The world around us today arguably has a greater darkness of having very little grasp of the things that give them a way of understanding why their lives are not as they should be why they might need to change. The power of God is always present in this world and it can move people suddenly and strangely and quickly. But for many others today, I think the journey to faith is akin to the one that Nicodemus took of slowly moving, learning, rethinking their ideas about the world and of faith, of coming to new beliefs over time. It's something that happens for Nicodemus through that encounter with Jesus, which he goes and mulls away on for quite a long period of time. If it took him ages when he was confronted with the Christ, the living word, how much greater for the challenge today when people are um, encountering us instead. There is something, I think, 
to say that actually faith grows now out of encounters with people who believe um, slowly um, and over time. I think one of the key things we are called to do in this world is to live out our faith, live out our beliefs honestly and with integrity. Um, and the best starting point we have for many people is just to do that so they so see a glint of just what is possible with God, and that, that perhaps there is more to life than finding your next bargain in the John Lewis clearance. What is it that makes our life and our faith attractive? What I believe it is, is what is talked about in John chapter 3. That we live not like other people, but actually we live the new life that Jesus talks about. The image we have in the gospel, what is born of flesh and what is born is spirit, speaks into ideas about actually what do we live for, what makes us alive truly, what sustains us. John 3 is about a fundamental change in our lives. So that what animates us, what drives us, what makes life possible is not just the ordinary things of being human and being alive, but actually the spirit of God itself. It is that which sets out and makes a Christian life distinct. It makes it a new birth, the birth from above which Jesus speaks of, to have the spirit of God empowering and enabling us in all that we do. A spirit which is given in the supreme love of God, a spirit given that we might not face judgment in the same way as the rest of the world. It's a life lived in the spirit of God that makes Christian witness distinct and different, something we should embrace and cherish. It's the distinctiveness of our lives and our witnesses that triggers, I believe, in many people the process of thinking about faith in a way that they generally don't otherwise. It's quite simple for me, really. I wear one of these collars around and about. People know who I am and what I'm about. And sometimes that's a very good way of having a conversation on the street. Often it always means I get a seat on the bus because people don't want to sit next to the vicar. <laughs> but the question for you today and for all of us is, regardless of what we wear and what we do, what is it that this distinctive life of Christ um, gives us in faith? How do we manifest that in the world around us, in our work, um, in the things we do, in the way we live, in the way that we interact with other people? One of the key questions early on in John's gospel comes from chapter one, um, when Simon says, what are you doing, Jesus? Where are you going? What sort of person are you going to be? And Jesus simply turns to him and says, come and see. I'm not going to tell you where I'm going, but it's something you need to come with me to experience and to know. It's only through that um, that you're going to discover the new life I'm talking about. I think the um, same is incumbent on us always to those who are around us. Come and see what makes our life so different, what gives us hope, um, what gives us that distinctiveness in this world. When I read John chapter 3, bizarrely, one of the things that comes into my head often is the theme from the TV show Baywatch. We live in this day and age. Um, we have brilliant television, but with dull or non-existent themes. Whereas when I was young in the 90s, we had terrible TV, but we had excellent theme tunes, didn't we? And if you can remember how the theme to Baywatch goes, it goes something like this. 
Some people stand in the darkness, afraid to step into the light. It's actually a pretty good summary of what John 3 was talking about, isn't it? People are stuck in the darkness and they need that help. Then the chorus goes, I'll be ready forever and always, I'm always here. Just like the promises and mercy and the new life of God for those who turn to him. What we have to do is always, like God, be ready for those around us when they ask questions, when they look at the lives that we lead to make the truths of faith so credible they cannot help but be interested continue to continue to be ready for those questions and those moments which continue to provoke those thoughts, which move people inch by inch towards knowing the great and all-supreme love that God has for the world and for them. When Jonathan returns next week, it's probably best not to tell him um, that I said evangelism is like Baywatch. It might cause a <laughs> bit of consternation. But evangelism is that process, isn't it? It's long and slow often, bringing people from darkness into light to accept the new life of God, which is waiting for them. In our day and in our age, Nicodemus, I think, is a powerful example of how evangelism can be for all churches as we proclaim that new life of God. That ongoing invitation of the psalmist in um, Psalm 34, 8, um, to taste and to see that God is good, should be our invitation and our call to the world around us. The second point I want to draw from this um, text this morning is about where does this new life come for us? How do we move from darkness into light? Now, the common answer for this is baptism. Now, this isn't immediately obvious um, in the text. As you probably know, John's gospel is not huge on baptism. Um, John simply says that he saw the dove descend on him in chapter 1. There's not a big scene. Um, in chapter 4, it will talk about how Jesus doesn't baptize, but his followers do. In John's gospel, the only real sign of initiation you get is all the way forward in chapter 13, when Jesus washes the feet of his disciples and declares that unless I wash you, you have no share with me. That's John 13, 8, as you know. But of course, we see as we read through scriptures the importance of baptism. It's there at the end of Matthew's gospel. Um, you know, go forth and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It's there in the letters of Paul. Uh, Romans 6 is a key passage about sharing in Christ's death and resurrection. And yet from the earliest days of the church and of Christians meeting and worshipping together, they have understood John 3 as being talking about baptism, what it means. That it's being born again by water and the Spirit. That through baptism we receive this new life of God where we're empowered by his Spirit to work in the world. Um, this was hugely important um, this idea that through baptism comes this new life of God. And for that reason, they would always use fresh water for baptism, an incredibly valuable resource in some places in those days, or living water, as they would call it. As water is essential for life, so is baptism for the new life we find in God. In the earliest texts of the Eastern Church, the sort of things I read on a Sunday evening for fun, um, they refer to the font, the place where people are baptized, as the womb, a strong image of where new birth, a new creation um, happens. And if you look at early church fonts, 
um, you'll see that many of them are octagonal. They've got eight sides, reflecting um, the seven days of original creation. Then the eighth side, showing the new birth that happens in that font. From darkness to light is a key theme um, for all those early baptisms. Very often, if you're going to be baptized in the early church, you would start in a room outside in literal darkness with no clothes on. And then you would renounce the devil and all the works of darkness. And only once you've done that would you be able to move forward through a small door with just a glint of light beyond it, which would take you into the place of baptism, um, which would be brightly lit, showing that you were making that move, like Nicodemus, from darkness into the light of God. Baptism is therefore, if we understand John 3 aright, about receiving this new life of God through water and the Spirit. And it's the foundational state of all Christians, the same life shared by all believers around the world. It's the basis for our common life and our unity. When we think of what unites us all as Christians, ultimately it comes to this. There is one baptism, one God, and Father of us all, Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. If we're talking about one thing today, that is the key thing to remember, isn't there? One baptism, one God and Father. When baptismal unity is realized, I believe that's when a genuine Christian witness can be made for the healing and the reconciling love of God in this world. Therefore, in that one baptism, that one life we share, it's a call for churches everywhere to overcome divisions and to visibly manifest their fellowship together. Now, let's be honest. Christians aren't always very good at unity, are they? One of the earliest critiques of the church is, well, look and see how those Christians love one another as they fall out um, and fail to live up to the demands that God makes of us in Scripture. Throughout the centuries, our disunity and disagreement has been all too apparent. Indeed, if you want to know this fact, the highest death toll in relation to the population size still remains um, throughout time as being the European wars of religion in the 16th century when people fought in the aftermath of the Reformation. Even today, when things are a bit more peaceable, we still know that people often choose churches for positive reasons, because of the fellowship, because of the welcome, because of the worship. But sometimes it's also for more negative reasons. I come here because you're not like those people over there, or those ones up there. We all know that, don't you? Whatever it may be. But the truth is, friends, that we have seen the cost of disunity. We have seen what it brings. What our passage reminds us of this morning is that our source of unity isn't our own work. That unity is not about creating our networks and our relationships with just those who look like us or sound like us or who we get along with or who we approve of. Rather, um, John 17, when it talks of unity, talks about it being um, Jesus' prayer that all of them may be one Father, just as you and me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of Jesus and God the Father is that they share the same life. They exist in relationship together. And that is what we are called to when we receive the life and the Spirit um, through baptism. Our unity is to share in the life of God in which a way we couldn't simply before. That 
is the source of Christian unity, God himself. Often we forget that. Often we um, put in our own actions, our own structures. We're just going through a time in the Church of England reviewing um, how some terrible crimes have been committed because people didn't want to upset the apple cart. Thought that actually keeping the unity um, or the facade of unity on the church was much more important than addressing the sin in our midst. And terrible things have happened because of that. When we think that unity is a facade, things will go wrong. People will get hurt. um, And the witness of the gospel will be marred. But if we remember that call in John to unity, and that that call is the life of God himself, then actually it's pretty freeing. We're called, all of us, to share in the same life, in the life of God. We're called to recognize that before um, anything else, (coughs) what we have in common is that life. Um, Perhaps that allows us to be more um, visibly united. It allows us perhaps to worry less about the things that really are aesthetic Um, choices often, but actually we are united whether we like it or not because we share in the same God and in the same spirit, and that is the foundational unity for all that we do. I think it's been, I must say, one of the great um, works of God over the last 60, 70 years that churches have become more and more united. I pray that it will only continue to be so, that our unity will help bring people to the light and to the love of God. John 3 is a great passage for this week of prayer for Christian unity because it simply tells us what our purposes as disciples of Jesus are, to invite people from the darkness of this world into the light of God, to persevere even when that seems difficult, um, to continue that with the hope we have um, in the life of Christ Um, which is eternally relevant, which is eternally attractive, that all that we do, we don't do alone, but we share in it with believers um, all around us and across the world in our diversity of traditions, our diversity of customs, and that we're able to do that because we all share in that life of God that we proclaim to those who need to hear it most. It is, friends, a great challenge and a great privilege that we walk together as churches to proclaim the same life of God to those who need it so much. May our lives, may our witnesses always, always reflect that all-encompassing love that God has for our world and for all in it. All this I offer in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bromley Town Church. You are always welcome to visit us on a Sunday morning or join us again for more messages here online. You can also stay connected with us at www.bromleytownchurch.com.